4: So I don't want to stereotype, but Uh that's right, stereotype (laughs) alert. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the writers we've hired who grew up on farms always have this amazing work ethic. Like, they all seem to get up early and just crank out work, whatever the circumstance. They don't miss deadlines.
5: Yeah, it's true. One of my favorite teachers in high school grew up on a farm, too, and he used to sing the virtues of what farming teaches you growing up, and he was the same way. He was, like, up at the crack of dawn and just so focused.
4: Yeah, so I was looking this up, and there's actually this great story from Iowa about the origin of Highway 6, or rather its predecessor called the River-to-River Road, and it went across the state. Now, apparently on June 25th, 1910, 10,000 farmers and some volunteers started working on building this road at 9 a.m. Do you know how long it took them to finish? I don't know, like a month? One hour. It took the farmers (laughs) one hour. By 10 a.m., they were completely done. It almost feels like that movie Dave. Do you remember this? So there's this scene where they give the job of balancing the congressional budget to a hardworking, honest accountant And he balances the budget in one night. It's that level. (laughs) Now, if you ask a ragtag group of farmers to build you a highway the width of the entire U.S. state, they'll have it done in an hour.
5: That's ridiculous.
4: I know. And I realize I got this story from the Route 6 Tourist Association (laughs) website. And it may be apocryphal, but it made me wonder. If farmers work as hard as they're known to, and if the science of farming is only getting better, then why are people across the globe still going hungry? And what will it take to actually feed the world? That's our big question today. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Shatikader. In today's show, we're talking about what it will take to feed the world. Scientists claim by the year 2050, the population will be at 10 billion people. That's a ton of people and a lot of hungry mouths to feed. So we're going to try to answer that big question. And along the way, we've got an incredible guest. William McCaskill, a professor of philosophy at Oxford and the founder of Effective Altruism.
5: Yeah, he's amazing. He essentially invented Moneyball for charity, which sounds like a marriage of two things that aren't supposed to go together.
4: Yeah, it's like one of those pitches you hear from an off-brand Shark Tank. You know, it's, it's like Uber, but for gymnastics. So. <laughs> but his work is really awesome. And we've got another nerd hero on today as well, right?
5: Yeah, that's right. We've got Josh Miller from Farm Shots and he invented this uh, program in college, and it's pretty incredible.
4: Wonderful. So, Mango, I've got to tell you, I'm going to start with a fact that's going to disappoint you. Oh, yeah?
5: What's that? Well, because today's
4: big question is about how we're going to feed the world. One of the first things I looked up was what we can do to be more responsible with our food choices.
5: (laughs) I do not like where this is going. I know.
4: And new scientists have this list of 11 things we should rethink eating. And the usual suspects are all on there, like beef, which always gets knocked because of the amount of land and water that goes into raising cattle.
5: Sure, like that's a big vegetarian battle cry, how the land could be better used to grow other things, and that a kilogram of beef takes like 20 times more water than growing grains. Which is sort of true. It takes
4: three times more water to grow beef than raising chickens. And according to new scientists, you could provide 10 to 20 times the protein if that land was used to plant legumes. But that isn't what's interesting. Beef is at the top of the list, and there are things like nuts and chocolate because they suck up a lot of water and resource. But additionally, there are two things I know you love. What's that? Coffee and, you ready for it, fries. What?
5: <laughs> French fries? Yeah. French fries shouldn't be on that list. I knew you weren't (laughs) going to
4: be happy about this. For you listeners out there, Mango was a vegetarian in college, which pretty much meant about 80% of his diet was fries.
5: (laughs) I really want to say it was because there weren't enough vegetarian options, but the truth is I just really love fries.
4: They are delicious.
5: (laughs) I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I was 10 or 11, we had to do one of those exercises in math class where we did a budget for when we were grown up. (laughs) And so we were handed out salaries and we hunted for apartments and we budgeted for things like toilet paper and household supplies using coupons. And we also had to plan out a menu. And I remember thinking, food is a great place to save. So I just decided to stock my fridge with French fries and frozen burritos and pizzas from (laughs) Sam's Club.
4: I'm getting hungry.
5: (laughs) I know. The whole idea was just to spend like $150 a month on food. (laughs) And when my teacher inspected it and asked me if I wanted to revise it, I was like, nah, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) I was just supremely confident that a plate of fries for dinner every night wasn't just tasty. It was sensible. It makes sense to me. I mean, can
4: you imagine if we had to commit to our clothing and food choices for life at age 10? <laughs> Think about how terrible we'd look and feel. We'd probably be wearing umbros and hyper shirts to work every day and eating nothing but bags of gummy bears.
5: I know, but I still don't get why french fries are so bad for the earth. I mean, coffee, I can see that. Like a while back, I read this thing that growing tea takes up more land, but coffee is a much more difficult crop to raise. That's right. For every single cup of coffee you drink, it takes
4: 550 cups of water. Can you believe that? I can't. Which is why I only drink Diet Mountain Dew. It's a very principled decision I made a long time ago. (laughs) But fries are on the list because of food waste. As a French fry connoisseur, you probably already know this, but apparently French fries don't taste good when they're
5: cold. Yeah, my wife and I do this thing where we guess how long it'll take for a fast food fry to go from like hot and crispy and totally delicious to completely limp. (laughs) And it's stunning how fast it can transform into something totally unappealing. I like that this is a thing you guys actively do.
4: (laughs) Well, it's also crazy how many fries are thrown out because they aren't good after 10 to 15 minutes. So in the UK, New Scientist reports that fries or chips, as they call them, account for 10 percent of all food waste. But the potatoes are only part of it. Fried foods in general are considered wasteful because of all the oils and fats that go into frying up all that deliciousness. So if we use the land for veggies instead, it would be a better source of calories for the population.
5: Which is like a total Sophie's choice for me. Choosing between eating french fries and saving the world? You can't do that to me, Will. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) But let's back up for a second. What actually is the state of world hunger? I mean, there's so many different things written up about this that it's kind of hard to keep up. And part of what's confusing to me is that I recently read we currently produce enough food to feed everyone in the world.
4: Well, those things aren't mutually exclusive. So close to a billion people go to sleep hungry every night, which is heartbreaking. And in 2015, the food and agriculture arm of the UN showed that there were 795 million undernourished people in the world. And while over the past couple of decades we've started to see the numbers drop on that, you have to imagine that this could get worse if we don't start to get a real handle on this. But you're right, there actually is enough food to feed everyone. How's that? Well, Gordon Conway, who's a fellow at the Royal Society and this heavily respected agriculture ecologist, points out in his book One Billion Hungry, if we were to add up all the world's production of food and then divide it equally among the world's population— Every man, woman, and child would receive a daily average of over 2,800 calories. That's enough for a healthy lifestyle.
5: Which is amazing, but on the other hand, it's not like humans are great at sharing. Like, we're not vampire bats.
4: Va- <laughs> vampire
5: bats? <laughs> yeah, they sound so bloodthirsty. Well, they are bloodthirsty. Yeah, they are bloodthirsty. <laughs> but they're also super considerate. Like, if a vampire bat has a couple of bad nights of feeding, it can actually starve to death. And because the creatures roost together, if one bat notices that another is hungry, it'll be a good roost mate and uh, regurgitate some food for
4: it. Roost mates? I like that word. <laughs> such a great word. <laughs> I like the idea of a little bat advertising on Craigslist looking for 300 other roostmates to share one bedroom in Bushwick. (laughs) But vampire bats aren't the only ones. I mean, humans are empathetic, too, and they do share food. There was that wonderful story of the man in Saudi Arabia who put a fridge out on his sidewalk and then filled it with leftovers for anyone to take. And that trend started to spread across the Middle East of people stocking fridges on the street with fresh water and food for anyone in need. And there are those little food pantries that have popped up in America Mm -hmm. and across the world. You know, people do care. It's just that a lot of little food pantries aren't going to add up to feeding a billion
5: hungry people. Sure. So being more thoughtful about how and what we eat will be part of the solution, as we'll be figuring out a better food distribution mechanism. But part of the question, too, is what is it that's keeping people hungry? And I think I have an answer for you. Oh, yeah? So I read some amazing research from Amartya Sen, and, you know, sends this uh, Nobel Prize winning economist yeah. and he showed how famines aren't really caused by droughts or widespread food shortages so much as they're rooted in poverty. And so how so? Well, when I first read that, I thought, how can that be? I mean, a famine has to be caused by droughts and crop devastation. But his point is that statistically, if you look at these food crises, there's little or no decline in the overall food supply in the greater region. Like, he analyzed a famine from 1973 in Ethiopia, where weather patterns caused a small region of the country, this province called Wallow, to suffer. And because the population was impoverished, their ability to grow and purchase food was severely affected. But the overall food production in the country wasn't substantially different from years before. And he showed this over and over in other places, including in Bengal and other countries, where the diminished purchasing power of wages was the root cause of starvation, not overall food supply. In fact, there's this wonderful series called Hungry Hungry Humans. Actually, do you remember the magazine Meat Paper?
4: Meat Paper, of course. It was that (laughs) beautiful indie magazine with all those photographs of meat from a few years back, right?
5: I know. It was so good. I don't even like meat that much, but I loved looking through it. But one of the former editors there, this Berkeley journalism professor named Nathaniel Johnson, he spent six months investigating the food crisis in a series called Hungry Hungry Humans. And one of the things he pointed out that Amartya Sen also says, is that one thing that can help curb a potential famine is free press. And it's simply because in democracies, politicians have to get reelected. Yeah. And as long as someone is shedding light on a food or economic problem, it's going to get addressed before it becomes a total crisis.
4: Well, you have to imagine the Internet and the spread of mobile phones is also great for spreading that knowledge. And, you know, currently there's some amazing apps trying to address the problem by connecting food donors with those in need. But part of what's interesting to me is, is that a little investment in infrastructure might also solve some of these problems. Why is that? Well, you don't think about this, but roads and access to villages and town centers actually play a big part in bringing people out of poverty. Like Johnson interviewed a farmer from Ethiopia who told him it takes her four hours just to walk from her farm to the nearest town. Hmm. And his point is, can you imagine if you have to walk four hours every time you need to get seeds or fertilizer or anything to raise your crops? And that's not even taking into account getting your food to market. Just imagine how much time she's losing. So a good paved road would ease her situation and help her have more of a successful farm. And there's hard evidence that shows this bears out economically. Like there was a study in India in the 1990s that showed for every million rupees that was spent on a road, which at the time was like $50,000, 881 people
5: were lifted out of poverty. And that's not just them, but their future generations. So what you're saying is we just need to get like 10,000 farmers from Iowa over to these remote locations across the globe and get a few roads built in under an hour. Exactly. It's that simple. (laughs) But
4: before we charter some planes and launch our Farmers Without Borders who adopt a highway program, why don't we break for a quiz? Sounds good to me. For our quiz today, we've got Josh Miller on the line, and Josh is a fascinating guy because he created a company called Farm Shots right out of his dorm room. Josh, welcome to Part Time Genius.
6: Hey, thanks for having me.
4: Now, Josh, you graduated in 2016, so you're pretty fresh out of college. Tell us a little bit about Farm Shots and what inspired you to create it.
6: Yeah, so we got started, it would have been the sophomore year I had at Duke. So I was kind of, I had this love for agriculture, and I was studying engineering at the time. I really wanted to find a way to put the two together, and there wasn't really anything out there that kind of did that uh, except for making tractors, which wasn't very exciting to me. <laughs> and so, and so I, uh, I, I went back and I did some research, and it turned out in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of research into sensing vegetation uh, from satellites, particularly for finding areas where there might be a disease or a bug, out do But the problem was back in the 60s and 70s, there there weren't really enough satellites for that to be useful, right? You got an image and it was really low resolution, maybe once a month. Mm -hmm. So if you fast forward to when I was about to start the company, it would have been around 2014, there were all these companies coming out of the woodwork that, you know, aboard Elon Musk's rockets and all these tiny rockets that were going up in space, were putting these tiny, tiny satellites that are about as big as your forearm in space, Hmm. So all that research back in the 60s and 70s could now be applied to these hundreds and, and almost a 1,000 new satellites that got into space uh, since that research had happened. And so I went out and I said, okay, you know, can, can, can we turn this into a product that actually helps farmers? Um, and it turned out we could. And, and I went ahead and I built the first version of the software, uh, and I'm a terrible engineer. And so it was, it was probably the most awful, clunky piece of software you could ever find. But, but these guys loved it, right? It, it made sense, and it was something that they wanted to buy. Um, and if you fast forward to where we are today, you know, three years later, uh, the company's operating in about 30 different countries. Uh, we're on about 10 million acres
4: internationally. Wow. that's so unbelievable. That's sure. very cool. So, so, Josh, what keeps you optimistic about the future and growing enough to, to feed the world as we're talking about today?
6: Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of funny because we talk about there's a good amount of urban growth going on in places like the U.S., uh, where you have cities kind of expanding outwards and outwards, which means more people. Uh, and at the same time, you know, a, a lot of what's getting converted to this kind of used land is, is farmland. Um, so the question is, you got more people causing less farmland. How do, how do you kind of feed those sorts of people? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's an ever – Pressing problem that's going to go on for hundreds of years. And the idea is, you know, we've got to take a shrinking amount of acreage and turn that into more food. And the only way you're going to be able to really do something like that is through applications of technology.
4: Mm-hmm. We certainly appreciate what you're doing with the business and congratulations again on on its success. So, um, so something equally important is uh, <laughs> the quiz that yeah. we're playing today. Awesome. Uh, Mango, what's what's our game that we're playing with Josh today?
5: It's called uh, Farm Raised, where all the answers are people or characters who grew up on farms. All right. Oh, and, no. <laughs> <laughs>
4: and what is Josh playing for?
5: As always, our listener is playing for a chance to win a handwritten note from us to his mom or his boss singing his praises.
4: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So this should be easy. What we will do is we will give you a bit of pop culture. And you tell okay. us which farm boy or girl we're talking about, okay? We've got uh, five questions for you. The stakes are very high, okay? <laughs>
6: well, so how many do I have to get right? Is it, well, is it we'll, we'll, well, we'll see. We'll determine. We'll see. We'll have <laughs> anyway. to turn to the judges in a bit.
4: So um, <laughs> they are, uh, I'll go ahead and warn you, they are incredibly difficult questions. <laughs> oh, so no. let's see what we can do. Okay. All right. Question number one. This superhero grew up on a farm in the town of Smallville and was raised by his adopted parents, Ma and Pa Kent, who kept him away from kryptonite. Who would this be?
6: Well, it's Superman. It's, it's Clark Kent. Well done. <laughs> Incredible. All
4: right. One for one. Question number I, two. I feel like
6: you're going easy on me. We'll, we'll
4: see. <laughs>
5: later.
6: We'll see.
4: <laughs> they may get harder. So Or not. All right. Or not. Here we go. This pop star behind Shake It Off famously grew up on a Christmas tree farm in Pennsylvania. Also, at the 2010 Grammy Awards, she won more Grammys, four, than Elvis would ever win, being three. Who was this artist? Taylor Swift. Wow. So smart. all All right. Two for two. Question number three. This Civil War general, who later became president, went into the military because he was a terrible farmer. Also, he once got a speeding ticket for traveling too fast on his horse. would this be
6: oh wow um ulysses
5: s Grant.
4: wow Mm -hmm. yes okay i have a feeling he (laughs) knew that when it was just kind of pausing for dramatic effect i know it's from all (laughs) the studying
5: of farms i think
4: that's right
6: (laughs) well i almost said abraham lincoln and then i was like wait that makes no sense
4: (laughs) (laughs) question number four this star wars hero grew up separate from his twin sister on a moisture farm in tatooine this was years before he would train with yoda Who are we
6: talking about? Oh, 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 this is Luke Skywalker. Yes. (laughs) Four for four. All All right. right, The the final question. moisture farm is not a real farm. (laughs) You don't analyze this? (laughs) No. uh.
4: Take your satellites to that. All right. Here we go. (laughs) Question number five. This rancher's daughter grew up to be the first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. While serving on the court, she used to run a jazzercise class in the building for clerks. Who was this?
6: Oh wow! Do I get like a lifeline? Can or he go like that?
5: five for five? First woman on yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court. The
6: first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, do I get that? so no lifeline? Can't call my mom. Uh, uh, so
4: the uh, the middle name would be the opposite of night.
5: Day. Sandra Day O'Connor. Wow, nice. five, five, for five
4: for five. So tell tell us what uh tell us what he won today, Mango. Well,
5: because Josh went an astounding five for five. In addition to this handwritten note, we're sending him, we're also going to send him a Sandra Day O'Connor finger puppet, which is a collector's item because it's the only Sandra Day O'Connor finger puppet we could find online. So congratulations, <laughs> Josh. Thanks so much for playing, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: That's right.
4: So before we get back to this question of how to feed the world, I want to talk about carrots, Mango, specifically baby carrots. (laughs) Okay. So here's the thing. You and I have basically grown up with baby carrots, right? Mm-hmm. They've always been around and offered as this nutritious option with lunches and whatever. But the truth is they're a pretty recent invention. According to the Carrot Museum, which, as you know, is my go-to for all <laughs> carrot-related knowledge, this California farmer, Mike Erosic, was throwing out a ton of his carrot crop because they looked deformed. They were perfectly good, but because consumers don't want to buy a gnarled carrot, farmers in the 80s would regularly toss out about a third of their crop. So Eurosic decided, why not try to remarket this thing? He took a peeler and trimmed down the carrots and came up with two varieties, baby carrots, which obviously took off, mm-hmm. and bunny balls, which did not. <laughs> bunny balls? Yeah, I think they were supposed to look like cheese balls, but <laughs> pretty sure they could have used a different name. And while this took place in the 80s, my point is this. There are innovations, both big and small, which can create less food waste. So carving a cute carrot or two out of a bigger, uglier carrot is certainly one thing, but here's something that's even stranger. What's that? Scientists at Virginia Tech have figured out a process to make the cob part of the corn on the cob edible. <laughs> Basically, it would turn all of that undigestible cellulose into good starch which would have the potential to feed millions more people.
5: That's so insane. Do you think future generations will still eat corn the same way and hold cobs horizontally, like out of tradition? Or do you think they'll start attacking it more like a banana? (laughs) That's a good question.
4: (laughs) Who knows? But here's another innovation. Apparently, scientists at Texas A&M figured out a way to make cottonseed, which are currently poisonous, into an edible product. And according to Scientific American, the proteins in the cottonseed that are already being harvested every year would be enough to feed 500 million people.
5: That's that's just insane. So of the 1 billion people out there going hungry right now, some crazy corn and cottonseed could actually feed half of them?
4: I mean, that's assuming chefs can sell people on the taste.
5: Yeah, I guess that's true. Like how the U.S. government taught people to eat calamari? You know this, right? Oh, right, right. Like back in the 90s, the government was worried about overfishing of things like cod and haddocks, so they asked chefs and restaurants to use squid as a replacement. And before then, squid was really only used for bait. And there's this great salon piece on this from 2014. But the government basically sent out approved test recipes and even encouraged the use of the word calamari because it sounded so much fancier and more exotic. But the funny thing is, because restaurant owners didn't want to overwhelm customers, they only served the squid in appetizer form, and that's mostly where it stayed on menus. Well, don't be
4: surprised if you see all-you-can-eat cottonseed appetizers at your local Olive Garden soon. But let's get back to farming because I think there's some interesting stuff we should talk about. So one thing we should mention is that while food waste in wealthy countries is mostly about people tossing out leftovers, in developing nations, it's mostly about food spoilage. Again, this is something Nathaniel Johnson talks about, but he reports that between 30 and 40 percent of food grown around the world is lost annually, whether that's spoilage from not being sealed in airtight containers or being refrigerated properly or even things like vermin. And his point is, if farmers could preserve even a fraction of this food better, could actually lift their economic prospects, meaning hopefully less famine, but also address some of the hunger issues.
5: Well, I know that's an area of study that's getting attention. Actually, there's this super simple invention from this guy Mohamed Ba'aba of Nigeria, and it's one of my favorite things. So you can guess that food spoilage is a particularly big problem in tropical and desert regions where fruits and vegetables can go bad quickly. But his non-electric refrigerator is so simple, it's incredible. He basically showed that if you take two earthen pots and you fill the outer pot with wet sand, and then put your food in the inner pot, and you cover the system with a wet cloth, well, the evaporation from that wet sand will suck the heat out of the inner pot and keep the food chilled as low as 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Baba has given away hundreds of thousands of earthen pots in the last decade or so to increase food security. That is so
4: cool. I believe he actually won a Rolex Design Award for this simple yet elegant design. But speaking of design, let's talk about the future of farming. Now, let's skip over the robot pickers and driverless tractors and get directly to vertical
5: farms. (laughs) I love vertical farms just because they look so cool and Jetsons-like. I mean, instead of doing your farming horizontally, why not just rotate it by 90 degrees?
4: (laughs) I love this idea, too. So especially because it makes eating farm-to-table meals easier in cities where there aren't large patches of green to farm on. But what's interesting is that there are a lot of people criticizing the idea. They see vertical farming as a gimmick because to actually give each plant light and water them indoors, you have to use electricity, which means you're not taking advantage of all the natural resources that outdoor farming does.
5: So what's the solution? I know there are floating farms where they're basically farming down on barges and man-made islands, but again, I've read that's just to supplement a region's food security. It couldn't be done in a big enough way to really address hunger issues. Well, floating farms are definitely interesting, but my
4: favorite of the futuristic farms is is the floating vertical farm. (laughs) Floating and vertical, best of both worlds. Yeah, I mean, these things are so theoretical, but they're beautiful. And the outdoor floating vertical farm basically takes advantage of the sun and rainwater. It doesn't need land to work, and it's shaped like a giant roller coaster loop, which not only looks really cool, but avoids casting shadows on the crops on the inside so they can get sunlight equally, which is pretty cool.
5: I mean, if we're talking pure theory, and this isn't Jetson's futurism here, but it is idealistic, the thing that totally blew me away was that if we could use the available land in the Congo, that could essentially feed all of Africa. Wait, what? I know, it sounded insane to me too. But according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, climate change is going to aggravate food shortages on the continent. But the Democratic Republic of Congo is in this unique position. It has giant territories on both sides of the equator. Basically, there's always a rainy season in the country, and only a fraction of the arable land is being used. I mean, apparently there are over 80 million hectares of land that would be great for farms. Hmm. And of course, the DRC has been rife with horrible wars and political issues that have prevented that development. But according to a UN representative, the region has the potential to feed up to 2 billion people. Oh, wow. Which, if we're targeting 2050, maybe that's enough time for the country to solve its internal conflicts. Plus, it only takes our Iowa Farm Corps like an hour on roads. Yeah,
4: making peace in the Congo and settling the land does sound optimistic, but so does trying to get the entire world to go vegetarian, (laughs) which we'll talk about after this break. Over the past 15 to 20 years, we've witnessed the emergence of data and carefully gathered information being applied to several different fields to make people more effective at what they do and how they process the world around them. Whether that's recognized through stories like Moneyball in baseball or Nate Silver's 529 in the world of politics and sports or through so many interesting works in behavioral economics, it's been interesting to watch as scholars help us approach these fields with careful reasoning and not just what our gut tells us. And today's guest is helping the world apply this kind of information gathering and careful reasoning to the world of altruism. In fact, he's the founder of a fascinating organization called Effective Altruism. Will McCaskill, welcome to Part-Time Genius.
7: Thank you for having me on.
4: So, Will, tell us a little bit about how you got into this field and decided to start Effective Altruism.
7: I got into this field because I was deeply concerned about the problem of global poverty. It seemed to me that given that I was, you know, from a middle-class family of a well-off country, and there were a billion people living on at a time less than $1. twenty-five a day. I just thought, well, why shouldn't I be doing this? And I made a decision to give away most of my income over the course of my life, to set a cap at what's now about £25,000 per year, like $35,000, and give away everything above that. Now, I'm not going to be super rich, but I'm going to have an okay income as an academic. Uh, And so over the course of my life, that would be between $1 and $2 million. And having made that decision, I thought, well, this is now a pretty big decision that I'm making in terms of trying to help other people. And so I thought, well, what's absolutely crucial is to figure out not just can I use this money well or not, or will it not be wasted, but actually how can I use this money to have as big an impact as possible? And from that seed, this general idea of asking the question, how can we do as much good as possible with our time and money, that grew into what's now known as the effect of autism.
5: How did your family react when you decided to cap your salary and give the rest of it to, to charity?
7: Honestly, my mom said, that's unethical.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
7: <laughs> they took a while to get used to it, but now I think they're um, fairly supportive. It was definitely a bit of
5: yeah, I'd imagine that's, that's such a big decision. It's kind of incredible. Yeah. And so, Will, what are the biggest mistakes we tend to make in giving to charities? I think one major mistake that we make
7: is to look at overheads costs. So that's where, and as a way of assessing the efficiency of a charity. You look at how much money does this charity spend on administration and fundraising versus how much does it spend on the program. And this is just a really bad way of assessing whether a charity is good or not. Because if the charity is implementing some sort of lousy program, and there are some programs that do nothing, some that are even harmful, then no matter how low the overhead costs are, uh, it's still not going to be a good charity. Whereas you could have a charity focused on a really really effective program, but it just needs to spend, say, a third of its um, finances working out what are the most effective ways to help. So in general, what we should be thinking about is how much money is going in and what's the good outcomes that are coming out. And this is just completely normal in how we think about purchasing goods in general. If you were deciding between buying a MacBook or buying a PC, you wouldn't ask yourself, well, how much does Tim Cook get paid or how much are they spending on administration? Mm -hmm. You just care about the quality of the product and how much that product costs.
5: Mm-hmm. So how, how does someone as an outsider figure this out? You know, like if the, the standard person at home trying to figure out, like, I, I know I want to give a little bit of money to charity, what's the best way to make sure it is effective?
7: Yeah, I think the key thing to bear in mind is just in the same way as, you know, most people shouldn't try and invest on their own because it's just too hard and you're going to end up getting burned. In the same way, when it comes to charities, I think the best thing to do is just to find some experts that you really trust and then... Um, go on the basis of their recommendations. Mm -hmm. And the two places that I'd recommend most highly, one is GiveWell at givewell.org, which makes recommendations for charities that do more quantifiable um, interventions working in the developing world to improve global health and development, such as the Against Malaria Foundation that I mentioned. And then the alternative is... Uh, at my own organization on the website org, you can go to Donate Effectively and you can choose one of three different cause areas. So global health and development is one but also farm animal welfare and um, programs to have a positive impact on the very long run future um, of human civilization and which we have identified as particularly neglected and high priority causes. Um, and then an expert will return what are the most effective charities to be giving to in these areas and then donate. So you might not get quite the same kind of warm glow or um, warm fuzzy feeling from donating through this, but you will have, you know, Tens or hundreds of times more impact potentially.
4: Well, thank you so much for giving us so much to uh, to think about, and and as our way of saying thank you, we want to uh, <laughs> we want to give you one of our quizzes that we have in in every
5: episode. So uh, <laughs> so so, Mango, what game are we playing with Will today? This is a game called Who Is the World, and it's pretty simple. Basically, we're going to give you a clue about one of the many many musicians who participated in We Are the World, and you have to guess who it is. So We Are the World was the epic 1980
4: supergroup song that raised over $61 million for humanitarian aid in Africa, and there were a lot of famous people singing. So we're going to give you a weird clue about one of the singers, and you just have to guess who it is. Are you ready to play Who Was the World?
7: I'll give
4: it a go. <laughs> okay, here we go. All right, question, question number one. This We Are the World singer used to be in a band with Art Garfunkel, where his hit song Mrs. Robinson was originally titled... Mrs. Roosevelt, who are we talking about? Paul Simon? You got
5: it. exactly. The song was originally about Eleanor Roosevelt before the
4: lyrics were changed. All right. He's one for one. Question number two. That's so interesting. This We Are the World folk singer and recent award winner of a Nobel Prize in Literature famously introduced the Beatles to pot. He also took a week-long vow of silence when Elvis Presley passed away. Who are we talking about?
7: I didn't know those facts. It sounds
4: like Bob Dylan. It is. All right. He's two for two, three left. Here we go. Before his death, this We Are The World singer was trying to build a 50-foot robot replica of himself that would wander the Las Vegas desert with giant laser lights. You might know him better as the king of pop. Um,
7: I'm going to guess Elvis Presley.
4: Oh, good guess, but this was actually, who was it, Mango? Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. Oh, Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cool. it's okay. Here we go. This We Are The World R&B legend claimed that Mick Jagger stole a number of her moves when she and her former husband, Ike, opened for the Stones in the
5: 1960s. Who do you think this is? She has the most famous legs in show business, according to George W. Bush. (laughs)
7: You know, I was born in 1987. This is a very hard quiz.
4: Um, I have no idea. You were born in 1987? This is unbelievable what you've accomplished. (laughs) I had no idea. Okay. This was, uh, who was this, Mango? It's Tina Turner. Tina Turner. All right. Uh, So this last one, here we go. This We Are The World star was actually a Bible salesman before he became a country star. You might know him better as the redheaded stranger.
5: Um, I'll have a guess at Willie Nelson. Yes, <laughs> Willie Nelson. Exactly. Willie Nelson. All right. So, how did Will do today, Mango? Uh, will went three for five, which uh, still entitles him for our biggest prize: our total admiration. So all right. Congratulations, congratulations Will. <laughs> well,
4: thank you. So, I hope everyone will check out effective altruism. Will, thank you again for all the work that you're doing and and for really giving us a lot to think about.
7: Okay, well, thank you for having me on.
2: apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast that's right
8: something that makes me crazy is when people say well i had this career before but it was a waste and that's where the perspective shift comes that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now this is she pivots
4: So let's talk about vegetarianism, which is often touted as one way to help feed the world. You were vegetarian for a while. Why did you fall off the wagon?
5: Yeah, I was a vegetarian from about age 12 until I was 22, I think. And then I moved to Alabama. Oh, that's right.
4: (laughs) I do have to say when you finally decided to eat meat and we went to Dreamland barbecue that only serves ribs and watched you eat that single rib slowly, just kind of licking at it. (laughs) That has to be one of the weirdest things I have ever watched.
5: But that's exactly the problem. Like, we made that pilgrimage, which was so amazing because it's just a shack in Tuscaloosa. But when we got there, the only things on the menu were a rack and a half rack. I mean, the (laughs) half rack is the vegetarian option. (laughs) Also, the T-shirts are just amazing because there's just, you know, there's like the white shirt with the handprints just like – Pulling across the shirt. <laughs> yeah, so gross. Pretty good. <laughs> I love it. But let's not talk about my inability to commit to vegetarianism. Let's talk about the world's inability to commit to vegetarianism.
4: Yeah, so this is how our pal researcher Gabe explained it to me. Basically, the world would be better off if we were vegetarian. The meat industry is responsible for about 15% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions and all that grazing land, which if you add it up, is about the size of Africa. It could be better used for growing other foods. But the problem with everyone going cold turkey vegetarian is that there are a lot of people who make their livelihood off the production and sale of animal products. In fact, it's over a billion people. And the majority are small-scale farmers in developing nations. So if the world just switched to being vegetarian overnight, not only would jobs be lost, but good meat would be wasted and people would starve. But if we made a slow switch and eased into it,
5: kind of like dipping your toe in a pool. But doesn't that feel impractical, too? I can't imagine convincing any of my steak loving friends that they should go vegetarian.
4: Yeah, it's certainly going against the grain. I mean, four to five percent of the population in the U.S. is vegetarian right now. And when the money flows into places like India and China, the populations that gain wealth are actually using that money to eat more meat. (laughs) Of course, one glimmer of hope here is that meat substitutes are getting better and better. There's seaweed that was recently discovered that tastes like bacon. I'll believe it when I taste it, (laughs) which is certainly a start. There are new plant-based products like Beyond Meat and the Impossible Burger that supposedly taste like beef and even ooze fats when (laughs) squeezed on a grill. And there are cultured meats or test tube meats, which are still a decade or so away, but will basically grow meat in a lab without ever having an animal involved.
5: Which is all awesome. But let's get back to the original question.
4: What will it take to feed the world? I mean, clearly it's complicated. And there's no silver bullet solution. So people are trying everything. There's talk of flour made from insects. There's precision agriculture, which could use technology to monitor crop health and increase crop yields. There's so many potential solutions for slivers of the problem, plus all the things that we talked about. New styles of farming, edible cotton seeds, reducing food waste in developing nations, a reduction in how much meat we eat. Oh, and possibly farming the Congo, too. (laughs) Now, all of those things would get us there, and also just trying to help lift the poorest of the poor out of poverty by giving them better roads and access to information. But all of that would take real, unified commitment from a number of big countries, and that's a difficult path. But the interesting thing is there are a lot of positive indicators. For instance, in 2015, the U.N. announced there were nearly 800 million undernourished people in the world, which is a lot. But that number was actually down 200 million from the 1990s, despite there being 2 billion more people living on the planet now. So a lot of
5: economists and journalists are actually hopeful, which is a good thing. That is a good thing. And speaking of good things, what do you say we indulge in a friendly little fact off?
4: So much more menacing when you put it that way, but uh, (laughs) let's do it. All right, here's a sweet one to kick it off. Did you know that if we switch from using sugar cane as the source of sugar to sugar beets, we would save over 200,000 gallons of water per ton of sugar produced, which could be channeled into growing bananas or something else, I guess.
5: (laughs) No, I think it has to be bananas. (laughs) Did you know in 1910, Congress nearly passed an American hippo bill? I didn't. The idea was to bring hippos to the bayou to eat invasive plants while using them as a new meat source. And editorial pages of the time praised the idea and called hippos lake cow bacon. Lake cow bacon. (laughs) All right. So I'm veering off course here because you used the hippo
4: fact, and I'm going to match you with another hippo fact. Did you know that in the 1850s, England went through an intense phase of hippomania when the first one named Obeish was brought to the London Zoo? So thousands of visitors each day crowded in to see him. Novelty hippos were sold, and there was even a popular polka written for him. Obeish was so popular that Charles Dickens was jealous of all the attention he received.
5: (laughs) That's so good. You know I can't top a Dickens hippo fact. So I'm going to bring it back stateside. Do you know that David Copperfield tried to launch a magic-themed restaurant in Times Square? According to the New York Times, the restaurant was supposed to have 70-foot gargoyles, a bar and banquette that looked like it was floating on air, Sections of tables that would disappear from view on occasion. And this is the best part. Every hour, a giant spitting saw would appear to cut a dinner guest in two. (laughs) Nice. It's a nice touch. (laughs) Of course, the Times article claimed the greatest trick about the place was how $34 million in investment magically disappeared and the restaurant never came to be.
4: (laughs) (laughs) It's quite the trick. That's pretty brutal. All right, here's a strange one. According to a 2014 study from Westminster University, hungry men find heavier women more attractive. And it goes the same way for women. They like their men huskier when they're hungry. (laughs) Apparently, it
5: takes about six hours of not eating for your preferences to change. That's crazy. Um, So Eric Carls, the Very Hungry Caterpillar, was originally about a bookworm named Willie. The book changed when Eric and his editor realized there was no transformation at the end of the book. The bookworm was just fatter instead of, you know, turning into a beautiful butterfly. (laughs) (laughs)
4: All right. So a 1996 study on leeches found that drinking beer makes leeches lazy and undisciplined. (laughs) Yeah, and apparently they're attracted to garlic, but if they eat too much of it, it kills them. (laughs) Just like vampires. That's brilliant. I know. The authors of the study even went on to win an Ig Nobel Prize for their research.
5: Well, if feeding beer to leeches is good enough for the Ig Nobles, it's good enough for me. I think you win this round. Thank you. Speaking of prizes, uh, who do you think we should give today's award to? Well, I kind of want to give it to whoever came up with the phrase lake cow bacon as a synonym for
4: hippopotamus. But I think a better winner might be the inventor, Sarah Collins, who invented the wonder bag. What's a wonder bag? It's this amazing invention that's basically a non-electric slow cooker where you bring your ingredients to a boil in a pan or a pot, then wrap them in this bag, and it keeps them cooking for you. The amazing thing is that 20% of staple foods cooked in Africa end up burned because they're cooked on an open fire. Hmm. So this not only saves food from being wasted— But it also saves a considerable amount of money on energy and allows families to do other things instead of spending so much time gathering firewood and tending to fires. Plus, it's got a great name,
5: the Wonder Bag. (laughs) Wonder Bag. I like it. Sarah Collins, you'll be getting a certificate from us in the mail to put on your fridge. And I think that's it for today's episode of Part-Time Genius. Thanks so much for listening.
4: Thanks again for listening to Part-Time Genius. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And because we're a brand new show, if you're feeling extra generous, we'd love it if you'd give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Part-Time Genius is produced by some of our favorite geniuses. It's edited by Tristan McNeil, theme song and audio mixing by Noel Brown. Our executive producer is Jerry Rowland. Our research team is Gabe Luzier, Lucas Adams, Autumn whitefield Madrano, Austin Thompson, and Meg Robbins. Jason Hoke is our chief cheerleader.